women who choose surveillance specifically, so instead of preventive surgery, that we continue to experience distressful chronic uncertainty over our lifespan. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetics and genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, an independent telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we bring you a patient story related to genetics. If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at graygenetics.com. And so, um, whereas I think genetic testing seems to be like the final point for many people, it really is just this, the beginning of another um, uh, process. Um, that uncertainty and that decision-making continues after you find out you have an inherited mutation. Marlia Dean Krusel is an associate professor in health communication at the University of South Florida and a collaborator member in the Health Outcomes and Behavior Program at the Moffitt Cancer Center. Dr. Dean Krusel's research interests are cancer communication and the communication of genetic risk information. Most of her projects investigate how patients, families, and clinicians exchange information, manage uncertainty, and make decisions regarding issues of hereditary cancer in order to create communication tools to improve health outcomes and health experiences. In particular, she is an expert on the health experiences and decisions of previvors, individuals with inherited gene mutations who have not been diagnosed with cancer. A BRCA2 positive previvor herself, she is committed to patient engagement and translating research into practice. Marlia, thank you so much for speaking with me. You're welcome. Thanks so much for the invitation. So when you were eight years old, your mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. Is that a good place to start your story? Yes. Uh, my mother was diagnosed at 38 years old. Uh, this would have been in 1997. So pretty early um, in terms of the discovery of the BRCA um, mutations. Uh, then her younger sister, my aunt, was diagnosed just a couple years later, ironically, at 38 as well. And we learned when we started looking into our family tree after those two cancer diagnoses that also my great-grandmother um, so that would have been my aunt's, my aunt and my mother's father's mother um, had actually died of breast cancer at 35 years old. And she found out she was actually diagnosed um, when she uh, was carrying my grandfather. So lots of uh, breast cancer in my family. Um, but my mother didn't undergo genetic testing until uh, several years later when I was in college. Okay. Do you remember that time when you were eight years old and learning that your mother had breast cancer? Oh, yes, I, I do. Um, I remember we were all sitting at uh, the dining room table and my parents uh, seemed a little on edge, um, quiet, and we got a call 
um, on a home line <laughs> and uh, they went into the bedroom and I just knew something was wrong. And so I went out the back door and there was a very large rock boulder underneath my parents' bedroom window. And I remember stepping up onto the rock and peering into um, my parents' bedroom where my mother was crying on the floor in my father's arms uh, on, on the phone. So I definitely knew something was wrong at that moment. Yeah. Did you ask your parents about it or did they tell you about about what was going on before you were able they to They disclosed about it. it. Yes, yeah. They they came out and disclosed it that mom was sick um and that she would be seeing a doctor who was going to help her. Uh and I I think they quickly realized that I was I wanted to be involved. So it was really great because to much, as much as they felt like it was healthy, my parents involved me in my mom's health journey. Um, I remember I attended, um, you know, some, I would go to the hospital with her when she was undergoing chemotherapy or radiation. Um, I, I remember, you know, uh, seeing her after surgery, um, you know, with a flat chest at that time she had done. Um, the surgery first and then got um, plastic surgery um, with implants um, much later. So I was very thankful that they involved me because it was a very scary time. You know, I was eight, my brother was five. And, uh, but it felt like we were tackling the situation together as a family. Mm -hmm. And when and how did your mother have BRCA testing done? So my mom many years after her breast cancer diagnosis, she underwent genetic testing. It would have been, I can't remember the exact, how old I was exactly, but I was in college. Um, and okay, so much, much later. Yes, much later, much later. You know, we had the four confirmed breast cancer diagnoses in my family. I think it must have been on one of her follow-up appointments that um, her physician recommended she get genetic testing. So she saw a genetic counselor, you know, they talked about, uh, you know, why there might be this hereditary explanation for why women in our family were diagnosed with cancer. And not surprisingly, she tested positive for BRCA2. Yeah. And I think most people who listen to this podcast at this point are pretty familiar with BRCA mutations. Mm -hmm. But what do you tell people it means to carry a BRCA mutation or BRCA2 specifically, which is, I think, what runs in your family? It does. Yeah. BRCA2 is what runs in my family. I usually say that I have an increased uh, lifetime risk, emphasizing the lifetime of mm -hmm. developing hereditary cancer. And that could be breast, uh, ovarian, um, and then pancreatic and melanoma. And then obviously there's prostate for, for men with um, BRCA2 as well. Yeah. Did your mother talk to you about her test results once she had them in hand? Or were you aware, even when she was getting testing done, that that was information that would be coming soon? Yes, we, we've always been very open with our health, um, you know, again, from that young age. So after, you know, when she decided to undergo genetic testing, she knew that it would have implications for my brother and I. So, you know, she double checked that we wanted to know. And um, information has always been kind of my coping mechanism. So, um, I said, yes, please <laughs> get the testing so that I could um, get it in the future as well. And um, so once she got the test results, she called me 
Um, cause like I said, I was in college and we talked through it. And then she said, uh, to think about it, you know, decide when I was ready to undergo genetic testing myself, but that there was no rush, um, to do so either. My mom has always had this life motto, um, which is to make the best decisions you can with the information you have at that time. And so she really always, um, at different key points in my, my life, um, emphasize that, um, to make sure I'm, I'm ready before I, I do anything. <laughs> yeah. What, what did that readiness feel like for you? Like how long did you wait before having testing done or at least meeting with a genetic counselor and what made you feel that, that you were ready to do that? Yes, I went to see a genetic counselor when I was in my PhD program um, at Texas A&M University. So, um, you know, that would have been college. She got tested. So we're talking at least, you know, four or five years later after that. Um, my husband and my mother went with me to the genetic counseling appointment, but I ended up not undergoing genetic testing uh, for BRCA2 until about a year later. The genetic counseling appointment was really helpful because, you know, we discussed my family history of cancer. We discussed what the process would be like, you know, what would be involved if I did the genetic testing. The genetic counselor did a great job of talking about, you know, what would happen if I tested positive in terms of medical management. But importantly, she also talked about, you know, what it would mean if I tested negative. And so that was really helpful to hear as well. Um, and, and just a reminder that, you know, just because you test positive for, um, you know, BRCA2 doesn't mean you're going to get cancer in the future, for example. And then if I tested negative altogether, I would have, you know, just the normal, um, the risks um, to, to women in general. Um, except, well, I guess a little bit elevated in, in terms of my, my family, uh, cancer diagnoses in the family too, but yeah. Did, did, um, I'm wondering, did you, when you saw the genetic counselor, did you wish you'd talked to a genetic counselor even earlier? Did they answer some questions that you'd had in college that you wish you'd had answers for then? Or was that, did that really seem like a good time? No, it was really a good time. I, I've, I've learned that I need a lot of time to process and make decisions. So, you know, I was focused on, on college and, and then getting into my master's program. And then uh, I was focused on, um, you know, getting into my doctorate program. And so it really wasn't until my husband and I started to think about, um, you know, family planning um, that I thought, mm, I need to speak with a genetic counselor to answer questions. Yeah. Was your medical management already different just based on both your family history and the possibility of having that BRCA mutation? The medical management didn't really come into play until I tested positive for BRCA2. I mean, up until that point, my parents had always encouraged me to uh, live a healthy lifestyle. We ate well. Um, we exercised a lot as a family, taking walks, you know, I was a rock climber. Um, so, I mean, things like that, but after I tested positive for BRCA, that, uh, that was when I chose increased surveillance for my uh, medical management. Okay. 
And how is your medical management different now because of your BRCA2 mutation? As And then maybe contrast that for um, someone who is just average risk at your age. Mm-hmm. So my, uh, so there's multiple options. You know, if you test positive for uh, this pathogenic variant, you can do preventive surgery, increased surveillance, chemo prevention. Um, because I wanted to be a mom and I was, you know, 25 at the time when I tested positive, I chose increased surveillance. That has involved for about the last 10 years, frequent breast cancer screenings, so rotating between mammograms and MRIs, um, trying to you know find cancer early rather than prevent it through surgery. I also see a dermatologist once a year to get a skin check, and then just in terms of you know melanoma risk, I wear sunscreen, I wear a hat, um, I continue to you know exercise and eat healthy as well. Yeah. And you have a doctorate in health communication. How how did your BRCA mutation or knowing that was in your family fit into your academic interests? Yes, it was really the driving factor for going into the field that I am and the research that I conduct now. Um, my experiences with my mom, it, it really sparked that interest in terms of, you know, how healthcare providers, patients, and their families communicate with each other. And so health communication, you know, it's focused on different communication strategies to understand patients and their family members and healthcare providers' experiences in order to improve health outcomes. So I didn't realize that there was a a field like that until I went to college and then discovered that, you know, you could get a doctorate in this area. And so that was what I chose. And then specifically, uh, when I started out my, my doctorate, I was really interested in breast cancer survivorship. But then once I tested positive, um, my, my second year of my doctorate, I really focused, changed my focus to uh, individuals with an inherited mutation. So a lot of my work focuses on, you know, how these individuals manage cancer-related uncertainty, how they make informed health decisions, whether that is, again, you know, these different options, um, preventive surgery, surveillance, chemo prevention, um, but also family planning or family building, and then also how they communicate genetic risk information between their family members and healthcare providers. Yeah. Um, are there any of your, of, I guess, let me say, um, before you were deep into this research, are there, are there things that you believe that as you've learned more, you've just found out are really wrong, maybe that a lot of us just assume, um, things that are just sort of counterintuitive? That's a great question. Um, one of the things that surprised me in my research, I'll put it that way, is that in my own health journey, which was then really mirrored in my research, was that uncertainty doesn't just go away after you undergo genetic testing. So I think a lot of individuals go into or want to get genetic testing because they're uncertain if they're going to develop cancer someday, like many in their family. And so by, you know, getting genetic testing, they'll determine, you know, if they're at risk or not, and then can make uh, informed health decisions to like medical management to cope with that and manage that. 
I agree that that's great. But what I didn't realize is for, uh, in my case, as well as in women that I have worked with, um, in my, in my research is the women who choose surveillance specifically. So instead of preventive surgery, that we continue to experience distressful chronic uncertainty over our lifespan. And, and that can include, but is, but isn't limited to, you know, different key moments in our lifetime. So, you know, that transition to becoming an adult or, um, perhaps finding a partner, um, you know, getting married, planning for children, um, being pregnant without surveillance. And so, um, whereas I think genetic testing seems to be like the final point for many people, it really is just this, the beginning of another um, uh, process. Um, that uncertainty and that decision making continues after you find out you have an inherited mutation. Um, it has to be a continued conversation between previvors, um, you know, so individuals who um, are have an inherited mutation but who have not been diagnosed with cancer, like myself. Um, you know, conversations that they have with their healthcare providers, with their family members, um, and uh, so that was something that I, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting. And so that has really driven a lot of my work to help us cope over time, that it isn't just, you see a genetic counselor and you test and then you're done, but it's this continued conversation where you manage your uncertainty and make decisions over time. Yeah. And I think you have a specific research interest also in men and BRCA, which tends to get less less attention just because the risks overall are, are, are lower than for um, people who have breasts and ovaries. Or I mm-hmm. guess I should say female, female breasts <laughs> um, and ovaries. Can you talk to me about your research um, on men and BRCA? Yes, it's definitely understudied. Um, men in, in, in my research, um, as well as, you know, the, the limited researchers out there looking at this specifically, men are, uh, tend to be largely either uninformed or underinformed about their own personal cancer risks. And so a lot of our work has looked at how men perceive their health risks, what they do when they find out they're at risk for hereditary cancer, what types of medical management they can take, and then also the conversations that they have or might not have within their family. So, you know, for example, you know, women tend to be the gatekeepers of health in the family. So when a, when a father tests positive for BRCA or, you know, another genetic mutation, they often don't know who to share this information with. Um, and they don't know how to have these conversations. So what we've been doing is trying to develop different interventions. Um, for example, one one is a, a brief comic-like narrative that really tries to model um, how men can have these very difficult conversations with their children um, and other family members um, to increase um, knowledge within the family, um, but also help kind of structure these difficult conversations. Yeah. Did you, um, I know you're married now, is that right? Yes. Did, had you already met your partner before you tested positive for BRCA? 
Yes, we had been dating in college um, and we're actually both from the same uh, hometown. Um, so he, you know, knew that I was at risk um, uh, just in terms of my family health history. Um, and it's funny, my my dad, I remember he had a conversation with my husband prior to my husband asking me to marry him about, you know, Marlia you know, she might test positive for BRCA in the future. And I want to make sure that, you know, you are going to stick with her. Um, you know, if, if that happens that she gets this breast cancer <laughs> diagnosis. And so, um, he was very aware and has always been just like my parents, um, you know, big support system in coping with my own hereditary cancer risk. Yeah. I think for so many women, there's the dynamic of dating with a BRCA mutation. Has that entered into your research at all? You know, I haven't looked at as much um, dating per se and um, pre-vivorship specifically. Um, some of my work has looked at how pre-vivors um, and their partners have, um, you know, what are ways in which to have um, conversations about family building specifically, um, but not so much the, the dating aspect. Yeah, like the dis disclosing. I've I've just mm -hmm. talked to a few patients before, and it's that funny thing of like when and how you just do you disclose to someone. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely. Yeah. I I think we do really need some more research focusing on you know single previvorship, um, and you know the, the the difficulties surrounding those conversations. Yeah, how did um br your brca mutation affect your plans to start a family? It it seems like you were already with a partner you knew you wanted to have a family with from a younger age. So having that lead time probably helped. It did. Yes. I always knew I wanted to be a mom. And so I was conscious about, you know, national cancer comprehensive network guidelines in terms of when I should consider um, preventive surgery in the future. So, you know, I undergo underwent genetic testing uh, around 25 um, so that I could you know, kind of keep that in mind for the future. Um, but I have um, two children now. One, uh, I have a four-year-old son and a one-year-old daughter. Um, you know, so given their age, I, I haven't really shared about my own hereditary cancer risk yet. Um, but like my parents did with me in the future, I, I plan to communicate with them openly about my um, health experiences and, and decisions. And this will, you know, likely involve some type of formal conversations when they're older, but also just informal conversations about, you know, the importance of healthy lifestyles. Um, and then also given my research and teaching, just I want to actively teach my children how to actively participate in their medical encounters, you know, encouraging them that they know their body best, that they need to advocate for themselves um, ask their doctor questions, bring relevant health information to appointments, make sure they confirm they understand what the doctor is telling them, et cetera. Yeah. Did your BRCA mutation affect timing as to when you had children? Like with your research and your doctorate, would you have preferred to have children later? Would that have worked out better for your career or not necessarily? Was the timing pretty much what you would have um, wanted to do anyway? No, I, like my research has found, I also accelerated my um, family planning timeline. So I had my 
son when I was 28, which was definitely earlier than I probably would have chosen um, if I wasn't considering, you know, preventive mastectomy. Yeah. So what, so at this point, have you had a preventive mastectomy? I have not. Um, You know, my daughter, she just turned one uh, in the spring, a couple months ago. And so I actually just scheduled my first um, screening appointment for the fall to have a uh, breast MRI and conversation with my breast surgeon to discuss preventive mastectomy and what um, that process will look like. Okay. And does your family feel complete now with your second child? Or if you didn't feel like you had this time crunch, um, do you think that you'd want to give it more time or possibly have a larger family? I think, you know, it would have been nice not to test positive for PRCA2 just Mm -hmm. in general. You know, um, obviously it has made my life um, more stressful at times. Um, particularly being pregnant um, and not being able to screen, um, you know, pregnant and breastfeeding can, can was stressful because um, I was oftentimes worried about, you know, being diagnosed with cancer during those times with both my children. Um, but I am very happy with the two that we have and very thankful um, that, you know, we were able to have two children and now very thankful that I can make informed decisions moving forward to protect my own health so that I can be in their lives. Yeah. What would you say to someone who has a lot of cancer in their family and has thought about having genetic testing done, maybe related to something that looks like a possible BRCA mutation, um, but they don't necessarily see the value in meeting with a genetic counselor excuse me, and they might be looking for information online or ordering testing online or just seeing if they can get a doctor to order the testing for them? I think in the world that we live in, once we make a decision, we kind of just want to have it be done. So I understand why people, you know, might consider direct-to-consumer genetic testing or going through, you know, their doctor, as, as you mentioned, but I highly recommend speaking with a genetic counselor first. Uh, they are the experts. You are the expert. Um, you know, in my experience, I was able to, as I mentioned, discuss my possible uh, cancer risk based on my family's medical history, um, personal, you know, history. I was able to answer any questions that I have right there. And then they also, the genetic counselor, I remember now that I'm talking about this, we emailed several times after that with follow-up questions that I had um, that came up when I was sharing with my extended family. So she was an extreme resource for me. Um, And even though I didn't end up doing the genetic testing with her specifically, you know, waiting a year later, I was really glad that I did that because ultimately a genetic counselor can help you uh, and helped me come to terms with the uncertainty that can arise before undergoing genetic testing and then during the genetic testing process. And then, as I mentioned, you know, with my research and my own personal experience um, after the genetic testing process as well. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that about being able to follow up with a genetic counselor after the appointment. I feel like with so many healthcare providers, you kind of get your time there. And then if you forgot a question, oh, well, <laughs> it, yes. can, it can feel like that. <laughs> and sometimes people aren't aware that within genetic counseling, I think pretty much across the board, just the culture of the profession is 
you're going to think of questions afterward and we want patients to reach out with, with the questions. Like that's, that's part of it. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm glad you brought that up. I also, I, I feel like I, um, I've met people for genetic counseling who thought that they shouldn't make the appointment until they were ready to test. <laughs> mm. um, you know, yeah. it, it's nice to, to hear you share that just that, you know, just, I get, I think because it's so conflated with the idea of testing, it's like, okay, I got to go to get the test. I have to talk to this person. It's like, well, you could, you could talk to a genetic counselor just to be more informed. Like that is the purpose. That is the purpose. Yes, absolutely. So you have a doctorate in health communication, um, plus, of course, your personal experience with BRCA. Uh, most of us, if we're looking for an answer, whether it's related to healthcare or something else, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll, we'll start with Google. <laughs> um, yes. And probably also <laughs> end up on social media, um, whether I guess increasingly maybe through hashtags too. Um, since this is your area of study and you have personal experience in it, what advice do you have for people seeking health information online or through social media? I think that's a great question and especially relevant, you know, just in the times that we live in. Social media and, you know, online health information seeking, you know, consulting Dr. Google, right, um, has really empowered patients to find and use uh, health and medical information. But at the same time, we need to be really careful of, um, you know, checking and being able to critically evaluate the information that we find. And then also not just, you know, searching for the information either for ourselves or for others, um, but also the information overload that can result, right? And so, and then too, you know, social media, one of the great things about social media is that it enables patients um, to meet similar others and um, share resources as well. I'm very active um, in the uh, in Twitter um, as a patient and researcher and have found it really beneficial to connect with people who have you know similar um, patient experiences like myself. But again, I think we need to really be careful with the information that we find. Um, so we can do that you know in a variety of different ways, considering the source of the information. So, looking for, you know, .gov, .edu, because these are websites that are being um, evaluated by experts frequently, um, examining, you know, who um, is providing the health material. Um, so oftentimes, you know, if there is a, a name, um, you know, the, the content is written by somebody specific, it's either listed at the top or at the bottom of the page. Um, you know, sometimes um, websites will say things like, Uh, this content is provided by, you know, their advisory board, right? So really trying to figure out who's the source, um, evaluate the source and the content, and then also looking for a date, you know, when was the material updated? When was it posted? Uh, Things like that, I think can be helpful. And then, you know, I, I think the other thing that's really important is, I think it's great to use social media and, um, uh, you know, online health information, seeking to find information, but ultimately we should be sharing that information with our healthcare providers, um, whether that's genetic counselors or, um, you know, our primary care physician or um, whoever we're interacting with. Um, So sharing the information that we find online with our providers, we can do that by, you know, being prepared, bringing the information, explaining what we did, you know, sharing what we don't understand. And they're the ones that can really help us 
um, tailor the information that we found to our specific situation. Uh, Yeah. So I I think those are, you know, maybe some helpful pieces of advice. I think the more prepared we can be, the more specific we can be with our providers, um, the more likely they will be willing to have those conversations and ultimately help help teach us, you know, co-construct, you know, work together in terms of um, evaluating and digesting the information we find online. Have you done any research? Are you aware of any research looking at whether or not most people are able to critically evaluate the information they find or specifically health information that they find online? There is quite a bit of work on uh, digital health literacy nowadays. Um, yes, uh, some of the work I I do with um, the nonprofit facing our, our risk of cancer empowered or force um, is trying to teach um, healthcare providers uh, how to have these difficult conversations with patients. Um, and then they also, forces recently um, launched a, a new initiative called um, BOAST. Um, and I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but um, it's basically, you know, a, a website that kind of helps um, uh, lay individuals, you know, think about how is health information trustworthy and how you can critically evaluate health information online. Um, so um, I, I can include that link um, for our listeners um, if, if people are interested in learning more. But I do think it's, you know, Dr. Google is not going away. Um, so it's a matter of being able to um, be critical of our health seeking and um, have these difficult conversations um, with each other and encourage um, each other to um, critically evaluate the information that we're finding so that we can make informed health decisions for ourselves, uh, but also share that information with, you know, family members and friends. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely include that link in the show notes for people. Um, I always, I wonder too how people's kind of mental and emotional state can affect their ability to critically evaluate what they're coming across. Sorry, it it seems like like in genetic counseling too, this will come up where, um, and really for anyone in a health situation, uh, where normally you might be able to think through something and evaluate quite well, but when it's so personal and emotional and stressful, it can become harder to to do that the Mm -hmm. way you would if it were like a topic that, that doesn't concern you so personally and intimately. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, health, the internet is full of health information, but it isn't always reliable or useful. Um, And then, as you're mentioning, bring in emotions on top of that um, to being able to sift through what's relevant. And again, you know, uh, apply it to our own situation. So, so bringing in the experts can really help us digest that information uh, so that we can you know, make informed health decisions. And if people are interested in reading more about your research, where's the best place to go? I know you have a website, Cancer Communication Research. Is that a good place to start? Yeah, that's a great place to start um, for for my academic side of, of work. Um, I have kind of three different um, main web pages, one for patients, clinicians, but then also academics. Um, and then if you want to learn more about my personal story, um, and kind of how that is integrated into my academic, 
um, work. Uh, I was featured with the the CDC's um, Bring Your Brave campaign. So there's a video and a web page for that. And then I, I did a TEDx talk um, at my university uh, a couple years ago, which also is a great place to kind of think about um, or I, I hope it's a great a great way to kind of help people um, make decisions based on uncertain information. Yeah, no, I good. I'll include all those links. And I thought that was an excellent TED Talk and really goes Thank back you. to and I think expands on, um, you know, your point about the uncertainty really continuing beyond mm-hmm. when you receive that diagnosis. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Well, anything else I should be asking you about? No, I, I, well, I guess, again, I think ultimately it comes down to, like my mom said, you know, you make the best decisions you can with the information you have at that time. And by including, you know, genetic counselors in that process and story, um, I think is really valuable. Um, So if anybody's, you know, considering genetic testing, or even if they're having a difficult time having these conversations about, you know, sharing genetic Uh, health information with their family members, um, I highly recommend, you know, speaking to a a genetic counselor um, to help, you know, kind of process that and come up with a game plan in order to, um, you know, disclose that information. Great. Yeah. It's always nice to hear a pitch for genetic counseling from someone who was a (laughs) counselor who had it, who had a good experience because, you know, I do of course interview some people too who have not had good experiences. So it's always nice Mm -hmm. when people say like, Oh, that was very valuable. (laughs) It was, it was, it was instrumental to me and I am very thankful, um, for genetic counselors and, and, and benefit from working with them in my research, but also just thankful for, for those who, um, you know, took the time to sit with my mother and, and myself. I recorded this interview with Marlia back in May of 2022. We reached out to Marlia and she had this update to share. Personally, I am still undergoing surveillance and will consider preventative surgery after I have finished having children. Professionally, a new project is working with couples with inherited cancer risk and helping them communicate about making family planning decisions. Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. To support the podcast with a donation, visit graygenetics.com podcast donate. If you would like to dig deeper into the professional issues raised by these patient stories, for $5 a month, you can join the Patient Stories Club. To sign up, look for the link in the podcast notes for this episode or visit graygenetics.com podcast. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.